Hey siblings, welcome back to Agape Answers for episode two. Today we have a very special guest with us. Reverend Melik E.M. Thomas is a senior pastor, community activist, and scholar. Reverend Melik is the pastor of the historic Bethel AME Church in Selma, North Carolina. And prior to this, Reverend Melik served as pastor of the Christian Love Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago, Illinois. Reverend Melik is a graduate of Howard University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Communication and Culture and a minor in Community and Economic Development. He also received his Master of Divinity from the Samuel Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University, and he is currently entering his first year in the Doctor of Ministry program at Payne Theological Seminary. In January of 2020, Reverend Mellick was selected by Morehouse College to be inducted into the 35th class of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Board of Preachers. Reverend Mellick, outside of his very impressive resume, is a dear friend of mine, and I am so excited to invite you into our conversation today, a conversation that was both liberating and loving all at the same time. Trigger warnings for today's episode include references to addiction and alcoholism, and I hope you can feel the love. Welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you. The pleasure's all mine. Glad to be here with you. Today's question comes from Instagram, um, and it says, how do I deal with guilt and shame of not living a life pleasing to God? And I wanted to open with a quote and hear your thoughts on it, um, and then we can really dive in to our dialogue today. And it says, I believe that there is a profound difference between shame and guilt. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or cure. I think the fear of disconnection can make us dangerous. And that is from shame researcher, Brene Brown. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on shame, particularly in the context of the church. Wow, well, first of all, uh, Jordan, thank you for having me. I'm honored. Uh, anything that Jordan puts her hands on turns to gold. Uh, and so I'm just glad uh, to be a glimmer uh, in the work that she is doing. But shame is uh, probably one of the biggest, um, I guess, hindrances of the progress of the Christian church, uh, because for far too long, particularly, I mean, we can go back over the, the length and breadth of the history of the church and how it has weaponized shame, but particularly over the last 50 to 60 years, the American Christian church uh, has weaponized shame as a method of evangelism. Uh, and so we bring people in uh, to the church by shaming them about their lives outside the church, not realizing or really not even caring uh, that that shame that we that we project on them, they carry with them throughout their walks with Christ. Uh, and what it does is that it causes us to not fully heal, uh, but to find ways to hide the things about ourselves that we believe are, quote unquote, not pleasing unto God. Uh, and so we we never live the fullness of our lives. It's so interesting that oftentimes the people who are trying to avoid shame the most are the ones who live with shame the most as well. And so I believe shame is probably the biggest piece of the church 
for which the church should be ashamed. That's really, really profound. Um, one of the biggest hindrances for the church in terms of reaching people. I'm curious to know what was your first experience or most pertinent time that that comes to your recollection that you feel comfortable sharing when you experience shame? Uh, wow, I was thinking about this last night. Um, my first time experiencing shame was in fourth grade. Uh, my teacher, uh, Miss Kimberly Ennis, for some reason had it out for me. I was a talkative um, nine-year-old in the mid-90s, Prince George's County. Um, in a class that was overcrowded, underfunded. Uh, and, you know, I like to crack jokes. I wasn't, dis you know, distinctly disruptive, but I was just, you know, I was talkative. And then also I was smart. And so um, for me, it I wouldn't even know that it was a, a, a singular moment in time as much as it was my entire fourth grade experience in Miss Ennis' classroom uh, where she made it her duty uh, to publicly shame me constantly. Uh, and I guess for her, she thought that that would cause me to change behavior. Uh, and so the initial thought that I can bring up is one time, I believe we were in a history class and she made a statement that I knew was not factually true. History has been one of my favorite things since, since birth. You ask my parents, I learned to read by looking at the encyclopedia and I'm not even joking. And so she made a, a statement that just was not true. And I raised my hand and said it wasn't true. And we had this little slight back and forth and she brought me, she was like, come outside. So she, I stepped outside of the classroom. Remember, it's fourth grade. I'm nine. I wasn't one of those tall uh, nine year olds. I was short. I was stubby. Um, but she was this tall, very poorly, very deep voiced black woman. Uh, and she looked down at me, bent down in my face and said, you think you're so smart. You think you, uh, know everything. Well, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you fail and make sure you get kicked out of school. I uh, said that to wow. me. I never get that. and I didn't, I didn't tell anybody about it for about 10 years. Um, and so every time something happened in class, that she was blaming me. Uh, she was pulling my, my siblings aside and telling them this, that, and the third. And then she would tell me like, why can't you be more like in class in front of students? Why can't you be more like your sister or more like your brother? I remember one time we had a midterm and I just could not, I didn't understand anything that was on the paper. And I tried to ask her for help, she wouldn't help me. Uh, and so I did the best I could. Mind you, this is the same year where the Johns Hopkins IQ test came and I tested in the top 96 percentiles in the nation. But this math test was just giving me trouble. I just didn't understand it. And she was like, she was talking about the grades in the class. You know, said so some people got, one person got like a 96, 97, and one person got a nine. And everybody was like, who got the nine? Who got the nine? And she was like, Mella got the nine. Um, and it was just, a, it was a very traumatic experience. Like all I could do was cry. Uh, and there was no consoling. There was no, well, you need to do better or anything like that. It was just a moment of let's shame Melik. Uh, and the ironic thing at the time, she had moved my desk uh, from the group of desks in the class to the, um, to the front out, like it was facing the wall. Uh, and so, um, yeah, 
um, the, that entire year, a lot of the shame that I experienced brings me back to being a fourth grader in Miss Dennis's classroom. That's a lot. That's heavy. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that time passing and feeling shame to share on top of that initial experience with shame allows shame culture to persist? Because you said you didn't share that for, for some time. Uh, absolutely. Because um, one of the reasons I did not share that, like usually you would tell your parents, like, I, you know, I always hear these stories about these parents coming up to school and going off on, on the teachers for the stuff that the teachers would say to their kids. Uh, but I didn't tell my parents because I was afraid that my parents would agree. Uh, and so I just lived with that privately, literally, uh, up until um, my my story turned around because it took me, let me see, fourth grade was in 96. From about 96 to about 2004, I was on a downward spiral when it came to school. I got kicked out of school twice. I failed the 10th grade. And it wasn't until I started to kind of turn my life around, turn my grades around, that I started to share the story in certain spaces. Um, doesn't mean I was healed from it. And it really didn't mean that I wasn't still shamed, but for me, it became because because things started to turn around and my grades were changing and my uh, like just people were looking at me as a leader and in a different light. It became a matter of of almost like a clapback, which never it doesn't heal the shame to say yeah you said this about me and now look at me. It's like yeah that that's a good I got you moment, but when you are finished all that you still go back and you still are dealing with the shame. Uh, and so, uh, shame culture, uh, it, you know, if that's what we want to call it, is is persistent mainly because we find unhealthy ways to cope with it that do not heal it. Um, for me, the healing starts with therapy, just point blank. Um, and I know not everybody has access to therapy, uh, but the healing starts with therapy. Uh, the healing starts with with naming and really just going back and pinpointing all those things that cause the shame, that cause the hurt. Uh, and so, yeah, like we we have in society, in this capitalist culture, have created for us unhealthy, un ineffective ways of dealing with shame, which allows for, sh quote unquote, shame culture to persist to be more pervasive uh, and to cause people to live their lives uh, with shame as uh, their, their coach. In the context of, of our faith walk, um, why do you think that shame is so dangerous? Because the, the very essence of creation um, was about the, the absence of shame. That that was what creation, when God created the heavens and the earth, and earth was out form, void and darkness was one, all that, right? In that second creation narrative, says that when God created Adam and Eve, that they were naked and unashamed. Isn't it interesting that the the second adjectival marker for humanity was a lack of shame? 
that that there are no there is nothing to cover up who I am, but in the fullness of who I am, there is no shame. And so when we create theologies and sociologies and psychologies that that feed and grow and nurture weeds of shame, we are doing something that is antithetical to God's creation project to begin with. God did not create shame. Shame is the product of us believing that we were not enough. Let me let me show you that in the text because they were naked, unashamed. They were completely made in the image and likeness of God. There was nothing about them that caused them to be separated from God. But yet and still, when the serpent finds Eve at the tree, the serpent tells Eve the only reason that God doesn't want you to eat this tree is that if you eat from this tree, you will become like God. But here's the thing. They were already like God. But the serpent had deceived them to believe that who they were was still not enough. And so out of that belief, that lie that we were not enough, Eve eats the fruit, Adam eats the fruit, and then um, they immediately become ashamed because they ate the fruit thinking that there was going to be some monumental change. And there was no monumental change. All they saw, all they, all that changed was how they saw themselves. Wow. Because they believed the lie. Yeah. Yeah, they believed the lie about themselves. And they hid themselves. They they put fig leaves on their bodies. They went to go hide. When they have that anthropomorphic vision of God walking through the garden, the first thing out of God's mouth was not, why did you eat the fruit? The first thing out of God's mouth is, where are you, Adam? Where are you? And that's all. And, and it's not until Adam said, I saw that I was naked and I hid myself that God recognized that something was wrong. Shame does more to distance us from the reality of our proximity to God than anything else does. God is more concerned about the shame itself than the things that cause our shame. So if the goal in in the faith walk is to gain closer proximity to God, if that's if that's the goal in our spiritual maturation process in becoming closer to God, nearer to God, and shame is not the vehicle we should be using. What what is the fitting vehicle then? Um nakedness. That wow. is when you look at that text, that, that text is a linchpin for me. That when God created us, God created us naked and unashamed. That is, those are the two adjectival markers of humanity that we were naked and that we were unashamed. That, and I'm not just, just even talking about a physical nakedness, even though a lot of our shame, particularly as people of color, particularly as black folks, our bodies have been commodified and have been manipulated and have been uh, become the object of hatred and shame to the point where we try to alter who we are and believe that we're not we're not adequate without a certain size nose or without a certain type of lip or without a certain body shape. And so it is not until we accept the nakedness of who we are 
physically, who we are emotionally, who we are genealogically, when we accept that nakedness, um, that is when and only when we are really able to, to be close to God because we can't be close to God um, trying to hide from God who God created us to be because God already knows. And, you know, God's going to say, just like Lil' Kim said back in the 90s, ain't no time for fake ones. And and so we think that we gotta that we have to put on this this show for God when God just wants us naked and unashamed. And I believe that the people who are able to live life completely free from the fig leaves that the world hands us and walk through life completely naked, completely unashamed of who God made them to be. Knowing that, yes, there are, you know, I would, there are some goals that I have for myself, some goals that I have for uh, my mind, for my personality. At the same time, God made me to be naked and unashamed. So just for accessibility's sake, how would you in layman's terms describe what nakedness looks like? So one of the things that I often tell people who are, are dealing with shame, because um, a lot of a lot of shame is attached to our bodies, and particularly theologically, um, white evangelical Christianity, uh, how it's manifested itself through chattel slavery, how it's manifested itself through um, purity culture, how it's manifested itself through the church, has made us distinctly ashamed of our bodies. And a lot of when I'm when I'm dealing with people who are nursing the hurt, I just tell them to literally go in the mirror and just start looking at themselves naked. You know, not in a sexual way, not in a lascivious way, but just start looking at who you are. Uh, and for some people, it's very difficult at first. It's very, very difficult because you start to see things that you think are flaws because people are told have told them that they're flaws. Um, but just that slow, that courage, there, there's a courage, a real courage that in a culture that shames your body, that you take the time to look at it and to say, I love my body. God gave me this body. I appreciate this body. This is not to say that we endorse any unhealthy lifestyles, but what this is to say, that God made me who God made me to be. And in this moment, I am naked. I am completely present. I am completely aware. And I am completely okay with who I am in this moment, knowing that I am aspiring to a certain space, being okay with not being there at this moment. I, I think that's a great start to recognize what nakedness really is. Um, Journaling is a way to look at emotional and psychological nakedness when you're not writing for public consumption. Uh, and a lot of us who grew up in the public spotlight uh, have a hard time not writing for public consumption, not writing thinking that one day somebody's going to pick up my journal and they need to see how eloquent and poetic I am. Um, but recognizing, like, sometimes I'm a cuss, sometimes. Um, I ain't going. I'm not going to write my journal in King James version. It's going to be 
you know, <laughs> raw. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, yeah, I think nakedness is just the methodical process of stripping away everything that conceals the fullness of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's hard, at least from my experience and what I've heard from my peers, youth, young adults, is really finding that line between healthy accountability and shame and understanding that there is a difference and God's love sometimes is tough and and in knowing God and in loving God comes with that change but where do you draw the line between holding oneself accountable and shaming oneself that's a that's a great question Jordan I think there are two pieces to it one of my favorite scriptures in Bible is uh, Romans 8 first of all Romans 8 chapter eight in general is one of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest chapter uh, of scripture in the Bible by far. Um, but Romans eight verse one is, is powerful, liberative, um, and really contradictory to the last 50 years of the church. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no shame. And so any quote unquote accountability that is accompanied by shame is antithetical to God and is a product, and this is the second part, of the carceral culture that we have, that our theology is both informed by and it informs a prison industrial complex that does not just lock people in prisons of steel and brick and mortar, but locks people in prisons of shame. It's easy for us to find people with whom we disagree that are not necessarily problems to society, but because we disagree with them or because they did something wrong, we have tried to incarcerate them in a prism of shame, that they should live their entire lives in shame. And I really believe that this, that's just product. And you could talk to a lot of abolitionists who, who know a lot more than me on this subject. But even the way that we talk about, oh, they're canceled, or we call people trash, or we say they're a terrible person. Um, we have created carceral cultures that perpetuate shame by the way that we name people. And so that is why on the flip side, people, when they do something wrong or that is perceived to be wrong, instead of holding themselves accountable, they hide it because they are more afraid of the shame than they are of the fact that life will cause you to change your behavior, change your mindsets and change your principles. And, and I think that's the big piece is that we have to get rid of this car carceral culture that does not allow for grace, that does not allow for people to make mistakes and for them to fall short without them putting their entire lives and ministries at risk. Now, there is a difference between people who make mistakes and people who are manipulative, abusive and are a danger and have used their platforms uh in order to fulfill their vices 
that's a completely different thing. But we're talking about people who uh, we're talking about, for example, pastors who struggle with alcoholism. They don't go get help because they're afraid that they're going to see one of their members at the at the AA meeting. So they just drink in private and they don't they don't go out to drink because they don't want somebody to see them at the bar with a drink in their hand. So they just drink more at home and recognizing that alcohol costs cheaper at the store than it does at the um, at the uh, bar. It's easier to go through a bottle of anything than it is to drink a couple of drinks at the bar or go out to a restaurant, have some drinks. And so you have a lot of pastors who live uh, addicted to substances and they hide it and nobody would know. One of the most prominent pastors in the city of Baltimore, maybe about 15 years ago, well-respected pastor around the nation uh, and a leader in the city of Baltimore. Just a brilliant, brilliant guy. Died at, I want to say 45 or so, 45, 47 years old from alcoholism, just cirrhosis of the liver. Because not, not, not because he was a particularly bad person, but because culture had taught him to hide the fact that there is a problem. And he could not get fully get the help that he needs because just think of all these preachers who engage in behavior that is lascivious, that is detrimental to their families. Of course, a, a lot of it is based upon access and manipulation and power. And so I, I'm, I'm more interested in the deconstruction of shame uh, as it lends itself to people being able to be held accountable because you can't be held accountable if all you're concerned about is shame because you'll never change behavior. You'll just learn to conceal it better. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think my question as we look forward in eradicating this shame culture is what would you say to, to young people in particular that feel disconnected from God because of this shame barrier about moving forward and moving from shame into this relationship with God that we've been talking about, this place of residence in Christ that we've been addressing? Where do you think that that, that starts? And you touched on it a little bit earlier with nakedness, but what would you say to them? A very important scripture, very, very important scripture that is often taken out of context and used to support systems of capitalistic gain, but I think lends itself to this moment. It says the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that you might have a life and life more abundantly. Anything that hinders your ability to experience the abundance of life is not from God. And that includes shame. I am 33 years old. And to this day, I still work through, I'm a grown man, but at the same time, I am still working through the shame that was taught to me and that I thought was good because our preaching often says, you know, it, it, it allows for God to be painted as some bully. Right. Uh, allows for God to be painted as somebody who doesn't want you to be happy. And that's the furthest from the truth. God wants us to live the fullness of life. 
free from the expectations of others, free from the need to live our lives for the approval of others. And, and that is what you and I are called to do. This is what's, what I think is beautiful about the story of Jesus's life, that before Jesus does anything in ministry, God peeks through the clouds on the day of Jesus's baptism and says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus does any miracles, before Jesus walks on water, before Jesus even goes by the, through the cross, God has already approved who Jesus is. And if there's anything that, of importance that you gain from this podcast that I've already shared, just know that who you are in this moment, before you graduated from high school or college, before you got the job, before you raise your, God is already peeking through the clouds and say, hey, baby, I'm proud of you. I love you as you are. I am well pleased with you. And I know people are going to hate you. They're going to try to kill you. They're going to spit on you. They're going to try to crucify you. But hey, don't forget, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. And when you live life knowing that God has affirmed you, that God loves you, that God knows everything about you, and even in the midst of it, God still loves you with all the things that you think are dirt on your name. God loves you. And when you recognize that, it is so it is so liberating to live life. And I want you all to do better than I did. I want you all to be able to free yourselves from the need to be approved by your pastors, be approved uh, by your parents, be approved by everybody. Doesn't mean offend them and be, be disrespectful, but to live your life the way you believe God has called you to live it, uh, in a way that is uh, communally ethical, uh, in a way that is honoring, and in a way that uh, that does not harm others, uh, but live your life and, and allow God to work in you and work through you. Uh, and to, the only way I believe to live the fullness of life is to take every day in battle the whispers of shame and guilt uh, and condemnation, knowing that they didn't come from God. I pray you enjoyed our discussion today and felt the agape love all up in the building. If you want to be locked in with this love, join me back here next month. And if you do not have a church home, I'd love to connect you with one. So please take advantage of the ways to connect with me listed in the description. Welcome to the family love bug and remember God loves you. And so do I. We'll talk soon. Bye.